0: Uh, Well, good morning. Uh, After a a short break, we are picking up our Luke series, uh, and I just need to tell you uh, that we're finally going to finish it, this term. Um, I think we started it back in November 2012, uh, and this is the term we'll finally make our way through the final chapters of Luke's Gospel this morning. If you want to follow along, uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 22. Uh, Just to uh, kind of set the scene for you, uh, what we're going to be looking at today is one of of the great questions of history. Here it is. Why in the world did the first church adopt the cross as their main symbol? Here's why that's so odd, why that's so strange. Pretty much all other religions, all other founders of the great religions, died old and successful. So, for example, Moses gets the children of Israel right to the brink of the Promised Land and dies old, full of years, over 100 years old. Buddha lives to 80 years old and achieves enlightenment, which is why they call him the Buddha. Muhammad lives into his 60s, but he doesn't die until he unites pretty much all of Arabia in one kingdom under one face. It's like they all died old and successful. In absolute contrast, you have Jesus who dies at the age of 33 in relative obscurity, in agony, abandoned by absolutely everyone in his life. You'd understand why people would look at the other religious founders and say God was with them. Certainly that was the case. I mean, look at their lives. That's the kind of life I want to live. Why in the world would anyone look at Jesus dying on the cross and say, that's the life I want to live. That's the one I want to follow. That's the faith for me. Why in the world would they do that? But they did in their droves, so many people in the early church, so many people throughout the old Roman Empire had their lives completely turned upside down, completely transformed by the cross, that the whole of society was changed. How could that have happened? Why would that have happened? Well, on the night before Jesus died, Jesus gave his closest friends the interpretation the explanation of the meaning of his death. And afterwards, when it was all done and dusted, when it was all over, they remembered it and they accepted it and it changed them. It changed them and it's been changing people all around the world ever since. And so really, all I want to do this morning is look at this life-changing explanation of what the cross of Christ really means going to pick it up in verse 7 of Luke 22. Here's what, what it says, now the festival of unleavened bread arrived when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and said, go and prepare the Passover meal so we can eat it together. Where do you want us to prepare it, they asked him. He replied, as soon as you enter Jerusalem, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. At the house he enters, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He'll take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up. That is where you should prepare our meal. They went off to the city and found everything just as Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover meal there. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I will not eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it among yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread And again, gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Three things here I think we can learn about Jesus' death. Number one, Jesus' death is the center of history. Number two, Jesus' death is the solution to the great mystery. Number three, Jesus' death must be applied personally. Before we get into it, I want to pray and invite Jesus to come and speak to us this morning, Lord Jesus, thank you for this profound passage we've just read. Thank you for the profound impact that these words had on your first disciples and have been having on the church down through history. Lord Jesus, let your word run riot among us this morning. Let these truths we're going to be talking about that I guess many in the room are really quite familiar with, For others, maybe this is just new stuff. Either way, Lord Jesus, would you send your Holy Spirit to each one of us, from the youngest in the room to the oldest in the room, to grasp the magnitude of what the cross is all about and to receive these truths with a fresh sense of wonder and amazement and awe. Do you cause joy to well up in us? Would new life, new hope come to each of us as we respond to your words of life offered out to us through the cross? Ask it in Jesus' name and for your glory, amen. Okay, point number one, Jesus' death is the center of history. First thing that Jesus tells his disciples and I guess in effect tells us as well is I'm gonna explain the significance of my death and I'm gonna do it through this thing called the Passover. You notice in verse 15, Jesus says, I've been very eager to eat this Passover with you. Now, why is it that Jesus deliberately chooses the Passover as the moment in which he reveals, he unpacks, he explains the meaning of his death? Well, what's the Passover? Anyone know who, who knows anything about the origins of the Passover? Just, just say I do know. It's not that I haven't a clue about this. Uh, I, I have some thoughts of my own. But uh, anyone else know anything about the Passover? What the origins were? Two thousand years old. At that point. Yep. So it's been going on for quite a while. Yep. Pam. Phenomenal. You, you should be up here doing this. Uh, there is pretty much nothing more to be said. <laughs> um, uh, I'm glad I asked. Uh, it's something that the Passover, uh, as Pam was saying, was this meal that was eaten the night before the Israelites were liberated by God from slavery in Egypt. So it had been going on for quite some time at this point. The, 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 it, it was celebrated the night before they were delivered from captivity and they, they would eat this meal. And God said to them, I want you to eat this meal every year. As a perpetual reminder, never want you to forget what happened on that night. I never want you to forget how I saved you then. And so this would have been happening for centuries. Once a year, they would gather together to eat this Passover meal. Just notice how, verse 17, Jesus gets up, he stands up, takes a cup, and he gives thanks and he begins to speak. That fits in exactly with what had been happening for centuries and centuries and centuries, because here's how a Passover meal works. Head of the family, Get up, take the first cup of wine, he would give thanks to God. Then a question would be asked of him. The question would normally be asked by uh, the, the youngest child who was present in the room, and the question would be something like this Why is tonight different from all other nights? And then the head of the family would take the opportunity to explain something of the meaning of the Passover. He'd say something like this He'd refer to Deuteronomy 26. He'd say, Our forefathers, our ancestors, they used to be slaves but God looked upon their affliction and their suffering and then he'd remind them of what it says in Deuteronomy 16 and he'd say do you see this bread that I'm holding my hands right now this bread is the bread of our affliction the bread of our ancestors affliction that they ate in the wilderness it was kind of flavored with kind of bitter herbs to remind them the bitterness of that experience and so as was the custom Jesus picks up the cup, opens his mouth, starts to speak the way it had been done for centuries and centuries and centuries. But as soon as he begins to speak, Jesus starts saying stuff that must have absolutely astonished the disciples. He says things that had never ever been said in any Passover before. Never. First of all, he begins to say, the meal we're eating tonight doesn't have reference to the past, but to the future. Notice he says, I'm not going to eat this again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom. So first of all, he's talking about something that is about to happen, something that lies ahead. But perhaps the most astounding thing he says, he doesn't get up and say, this is the bread of their affliction that our ancestors ate way back then in the wilderness. No, he says, this is the bread of my affliction, This is my body. Uh, This bread has to be broken for you to be fed, so my body is going to have to be broken. My life is going to have to be poured out for you to have deliverance, for you to have freedom, for you to have life. Listen, when Jesus chooses the Passover as the context for talking about his death, do you realize what he's saying? He's saying, years ago, They ate this meal the night before God redeemed them, rescued them from political and economic slavery in Egypt. But tonight, we eat a meal the night before God will redeem and rescue us from sin and from death, from hell, from evil itself. All other sacrifices, all other deliverances by all the other leaders, they're merely pointing to this moment. They're all pointing to me. It's like, I am the ultimate Moses. This is the ultimate Exodus. This is the night that is the night that's different from all other nights. He's saying, my death is the climax to which all of history has been heading. Now for the disciples sharing this Passover meal with Jesus this would have completely blown their minds. It was absolutely astonishing what Jesus was saying here. It sounds crazy, but it's the first thing you must believe about the death of Jesus if it's going to actually transform your life the way it transformed those first disciples' lives. Jesus says, my death's a cross. It really is the center point of history. That's the first point. Here's the second one. Jesus' death... Is the solution to the great mystery. Now, what is the great mystery? Let's look at this. It's a modern version as well as an ancient version of this mystery. And it has something to do with this rather irritating word, sin. Let me give you the ancient version of the mystery. The ancient version of the mystery is the Passover itself. Do you remember? The main course of the Passover, as Pam helpfully told us earlier, was the lamb. Now why a lamb? Well here's the history. If you were to go back and read uh, the book of Exodus, go back to the original Passover, here's the problem. The Israelites were slaves. They were being killed, they are being tortured, they are being mistreated, they were being oppressed by Pharaoh. And so God says to Pharaoh, leader of the Egyptians, let them go. Let my people go. Stop this tyranny. Stop your awful, dreadful oppression. Stop your murdering of my people. And Pharaoh repeatedly says, no, 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 it's not going to happen. Finally, God comes to Moses, his representative, and he says, tonight I'm going to bring judgment down on Egypt. I'm going to bring judgment down on their oppression and their injustice. Enough. Tonight, the angel of eternal justice will come down. But my justice is fair. There is no prejudice to it. You see, there's no favoritism. And that means absolutely everyone in Egypt Will be subject to my justice, not just the Egyptians, which means that every Israelite household in Egypt will also be judged. Do they live up to the law of God? Do they love their neighbors as themselves? Do they even live up to their own standards? Fact is, for every human being, every family on the face of the earth, then and ever since, the answer to that question is a resounding no. And if we all get what we deserve, no one can avoid judgment. And so God says to Moses, look, the only way the Israelites will survive this night, this dreadful night, is if every family takes a lamb and kills the lamb and eats the lamb and then puts the blood on the doorpost. And if the blood is on the door, when the angel of justice comes by, it will pass it over and you'll be saved. Do you know what God's saying here? It's amazing. What God's saying is, you won't be saved merely because of being Jewish. In fact, there's one place where he says, if there's an Israelite that's found outside tonight, if anyone chooses not to take shelter under the blood of the Lamb, they will lose their life. So, you won't be saved by being Jewish. That's not enough. You won't be saved by having the right religion versus the wrong religion. You'll only be saved through faith in the provision of the substitute. You'll only be saved by faithfully taking shelter under the blood of the Lamb. It's the only way. But if you do that, judgment will pass by because your debt to justice will be paid. That's the story. That's why the lamb is the main course of the meal. But doesn't that still leave a major mystery? It absolutely does. It's a huge mystery. I mean, certainly some of you have already thought about this. I mean, why in the world would the death of a furry little animal satisfy God's justice? Why? Well, here's why. It's like... God's giving us a hint of what's to come. Centuries later, as we've seen, Jesus gets up at a Passover meal. He takes the wine and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. The word covenant is a richly relational word. A covenant is a binding, intimate relationship. He says, do you remember the first Passover when you were able to enter into this loving relationship with God and justice was turned aside? Remember that? It was all because of the blood of a lamb, but I today am the ultimate lamb of God. You see the blood of those little innocent woolly animals, they didn't pay for sin once and for all. All those animals were doing was really pointing to me. If you put your trust in my blood blood shed on the cross for you, then you'll be saved. Judgment will pass over you because I've paid your debt to justice once and for all. That's the ancient version of this mystery. I think there's also a modern version. Because you know what? This doesn't satisfy the average person nowadays. In fact, you might be sitting there distinctly dissatisfied with what I've said thus far. You see, the average person on the street or even in this room says, look, this is the part of Christianity I, I, I still don't get. I mean, why all the blood? Why all the gore? Why on earth is all of this stuff necessary? Why can't God just forgive people? Why doesn't he just make a decree from heaven saying, I forgive you? Why all this other stuff? Ever found yourself wondering that? If you have, let me try and give you an answer. Think about it like this. I like to imagine that someone really wrongs you, really hurts you, really betrays you, That happens. Essentially, there are only two things you can do. The first thing is, you can just sit there seething, resenting and hating that other person. Just hate them, resent them. But You know what happens then? The evil that has been done to you, in effect, passes in some way into you. It's like the evil wins the day if you end up hating them. It's like you become hardened, you become cold, you become disillusioned. All sorts of other stuff gets in. The only other thing you can do is forgive them. Remember the question, why can't God just say, I forgive you? Well, you try it. If you say, well, somebody wronged me and I forgave them, it's no big deal. I suggest they didn't really wrong you. I mean, if someone has really hurt you, really wounded you, really, really betrayed you, you try saying, I forgive you, Just kind of go home and try and forget all about it. And you'll see it isn't quite as simple as that because words aren't the currency of forgiveness. I'll tell you how you have to forgive. If you're going to forgive someone and you want to see them pay but you forgive, you you, you hold back from hurting them, you hold back from harming them, you refrain from vengeance, you refrain from thinking bad thoughts about them, you, you, you hold back from gossiping, you stop slandering them to other people. You you refrain from carving up their reputation with others. Do you know what? That hurts. Personally, that can be real agony. It's like you are suffering in that moment. It's an emotional fact of life that you cannot forgive someone else without, in some way, suffering yourself. It costs you. Now, here's what's weird. If somebody wrongs you and you hate them, you will suffer. we have seen that. In the process, evil wins the day. It beats you. Now, If you try to forgive that other person, I've got to tell you, you will still suffer. But in that case, you triumph over evil. But either way, you suffer. The only way to forgive somebody is to refrain, to hold back, to stop. And it hurts, and it's painful, and it's costly, and at times it can even be agony. Do you know Why? 'Cause the currency of forgiveness isn't merely words. Effectively, it is nails and thorns and blood and tears and sweat. So here's where we stand. If you and I these pretty weak, vulnerable, fallible, imperfect human beings, cannot even forgive without suffering, how in the world is God ever going to forgive us? That is the mystery. I mean, if someone wrongs you, you know there's a debt and either they pay it, you make them pay, or you pay it yourself. How much more would that be the case with God? Think all the crimes we've done against each other. Think of all the crimes we've done against God. There's a debt. There are only two things God can do with it. He can punish us, or He can forgive us. But if He's going to forgive us, in some way, He will have to pay the debt Himself. He will have to bear the cost. He will have to take it into Himself. He will have to suffer. And He did. Because you see, Jesus became fully man. And so he was able to suffer and die. but Because Jesus is at one and the same time also fully God in a unique way. His suffering and death pays the cost completely for our sin. That is the solution to the great mystery. So we've seen Jesus' death is the center of history. Seeing Jesus' death really is the solution to the great mystery. Thirdly and finally, Jesus' death must be applied or appropriated personally. Think about it. Why do you reckon Jesus chose a meal as the ultimate symbol of his death? Well, first of all, I reckon it's because a meal has to be personally appropriated. It has to be personally eaten, if you like. I mean, you, you just look at it. Imagine a table filled with food. You say, yep, that's a great cake. Yeah, that looks like a, a great steak. That, that looks like a wonderful meal. But you know what? There is absolutely no nutritional value to believing in it. There is absolutely no benefit to you in praising it or even standing there singing songs about it. (laughs) Not a bit. You could starve to death doing that kind of stuff. In the same way, you can believe in the cross. You can admire the cross. You can believe that Jesus died for your sins in some general way, But the key question is, have you personally appropriated it? Have you taken it in yourself? Have you applied it to yourself? Have you personally stepped out in faith as a result of it? Have you said, God, I'm going to base my relationship with you not on my own works, my own efforts, but solely on yours? Save me, not because of what I have done, save me in spite of what I've done, because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Have you personally made this message your own? Have you said, I know he did it for me. I'm going to live my life on the basis of that. If you haven't, it won't do you a whole lot of good. You can come here on a Sunday, you can sing songs about it. You can kind of, in in, in your mind, say, yeah, I'm sure all of that happens, but it has to be continually appropriated, applied, devoured, taken into your life personally. It's the thing about a meal. When Jesus says, my death is like a meal, here's what I think he's saying. He's saying it's not enough just to have one meal, is it? You can't say, well, I had this immense meal back in 1990. Haven't needed to eat since. Truth be told, still picking it out of my teeth. Still tastes pretty good. I don't think so. If you take that approach, you are going to die. You have to keep on eating. So here's what Jesus says. Do this. Take this meal in remembrance of of me. Remember, literally means it's your job to continually take what I did for you on the cross and put it right into the center of your consciousness, your thinking, your mind. Remember to keep it right at the center of your life. And so to help us, Jesus gives us these visual aids. He says, whenever you eat bread and drink wine with friends and family who are part of my community of believers, you just stop and reflect on what I've done for you. You eat bread, when you drink wine, look back with joy and remember that my shed blood on the cross spells ultimate freedom for you. I don't know. Maybe you're still haunted by your past. It's like... you. You just can't get over the past. Something you did, some terrible failure that you feel you did. You know, there's an old hymn that goes, Well, may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. Why? Because of the cross. Whenever you take the bread and wine, you are celebrating the fact that the cross spells freedom once and for all to all of your guilt, all of the condemnation, all of your shame. Or maybe you're going through some suffering right now, awful suffering, and you're mad and you say, I don't see how on earth God could ever bring anything good out of this situation. Will you imagine how many people were standing around the cross muttering those same words to one another? I, I don't see how God could bring anything good out of this. I can't help wondering how many people actually lost their faith whilst they're in the very presence of the most incredible thing God ever did for the human race. Because here's how the average person looks at suffering. They say, because I can't think of any reason why God would let this happen, therefore there cannot be any reason why God would, because I can't think of any good reason for this, there cannot be any good reason for this. Now it might seem logical to you, but the cross says the greatest failures and the greatest suffering could be a way for God to do something incredibly good, something that on the surface, it looks like a disaster, could end up being something that ends up being for the salvation of many, even the salvation of the whole world. Do you see? You bring the cross in. You appropriate it. You apply it to yourself. You view your current circumstances in light of the cross. You bring the cross in. You can handle your past. You bring the cross in. You can handle the suffering. So Jesus says, look back with joy and remember that my shed blood on the cross spells freedom for you. But as I've already hinted at, there is also a huge future element to this. Do you notice how Jesus continually says through this passage, I will not eat this again, I will not drink this again, till I eat till I drink with you in the kingdom. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying this meal is just a foretaste of bliss. It's just a foretaste of the absolute joy which I have secured for you through my death. It is guaranteed. So look forward with hope to the day when we share this meal together in the kingdom to come. It will come. So whenever you eat of the Lord's Supper, think like this. There is always hope. Our bad things will turn to good. In eternity, our good things can never be taken from us. And the best things are yet to come. Now before we finish... That's by way of a quicker side, really. I'm regularly asked by people, even people in the room here, why we don't often celebrate the Lord's Supper on a Sunday morning. And the reason I usually give is that it seems to me that the most natural context for celebrating the Lord's Supper, I think the clue is in the word supper, is when we're actually eating a meal together. As we've seen, Jesus modelled this in the context of a meal with his closest friends. The first church appeared to apply this by meeting from house to house, worshipping, praying, teaching, encouraging, eating together. As they did that, they had bread and wine on the table, celebrated the Lord's Supper together in and out of one another's homes. Which is one of the reasons why we tend to eat together in our midweek life groups. And in the context of the meal, to break bread with one another around the table. So I, I just want to shamelessly make a pitch to you this morning. You'll be hearing a bit more about life group sign up uh, in, in, in a little while. I want to urge all of you to get into a life group. Sign up for a life group because if you don't, you're missing out on one of the primary places that we as a church get to share our lives with one another, encouraging and praying and worshipping and ministering and eating and breaking bread together. Now, if for whatever reason, you're unable to make it to a life group. We do also share the Lord's Supper at our forward meetings that we do every term. We've got one of those coming up next month. And actually, there's absolutely no reason why you can't break bread whenever you're eating with friends and family who are part of the community of believers. In fact, I can't help wondering whether this was more like what Jesus had in mind when we're with others who share our faith in Jesus? We're eating together. There's bread or wine or a substitute for wine on the table. Remember and look forward together naturally in that moment. But all that being said, I think it would be strange, wouldn't it, to talk about breaking bread this morning and not give you an opportunity to actually apply the message right now. And so, That's what we're going to do. Uh, In a few moments, uh, parents are going to be released to go and collect their kids from the kids' work, bring them back, uh, and then we're going to break bread together. We're going to uh, sing a song that focuses us on what Jesus has done. There's a a table at the front, tables uh, at the back as well, for you to come and get bread and wine. If today, you personally want to find refuge in the cross, if you want to publicly show that you are trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection for your salvation, if you want to declare that your hope today is in Him, if you want to celebrate something, the freedom that He has won for you, then I'll invite you at the right moment to come and take the bread and take the wine. As we've seen, it's not enough to simply believe this stuff. You can't just rely on someone else's faith. You need to personally respond, personally appropriate, apply it to your life. And if you really get it, you'll do it with reverence and with awe. You'll do it with joy and with celebration. And you'll do it with immense hope. Let's pray.